You are listening to the Miles Straight Podcast. For more information on Miles Straight or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.milestraightbc.org. The speaker for today will be our senior pastor, Tom Goss. Boy, I've really enjoyed the music, both the early service and today. It's so good to, to sing. I, I find myself using all my voice by just singing. Y'all ever do that? You just want to belt it out. So good. Hey, it is good to be with y'all. I am so honored to be here at Miles Straight Baptist Church. I want to thank you for your ministry, not only in Saudi Daisy and Hamilton County, but across the nation for all that you do. And you know, it's funny, I um, found out that we have a mutual friend or had a mutual friend, Ted Bashford. How many of you remember Ted or knew about Ted? Ted uh, for, was a pastor here back in the 50s, I think. And uh, I pastored up in Virginia, around the Virginia Beach area for a number of years. And we used to be real involved in his ministry at Hope Haven. And thank the Lord for him. It is good to be here. I appreciate and love you, Pastor Tom, taking a risk on an old guy like me, letting me preach today. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 9. The book of Matthew, chapter 9, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 37 tonight, today. And, and again, I appreciate you being here. While you're turning to that, let me just go ahead and get started. I remember this like it was yesterday. I was a little boy. I was third grade. It was a Wednesday night, and I was reading a comic book under the covers of my bed with a flashlight so Mom and Daddy wouldn't see. When all of a sudden, just out of the blue, I heard the most piercing, horrible scream that just resonated through the house. Now, I will tell you, we didn't hear that that often in our house. And so I jumped out of bed to find out what in the world is going on. And I'm going down the road, I'm going down the road, going down the hall of my house when my dad, who has also heard the scream, runs over me in his haste to find out what's going on. He arrives just before I do to the kitchen. And there in our kitchen stands my mother, screaming at the top of her voice with fear in her eyes. And right beside her is a stranger a woman that none of us know, and she's screaming in unison with my mother. Now, that was the strangest sight. I'll never forget it. Now, my dad quickly comes in and takes control. He has both the ladies sit down at the chrome kitchen table that we had, like everybody else did back then. And he finally coaxed out of this woman the reason she was there. You see, this lady... Uh, worked in town. And by the way, let me tell you this. We live six miles out of the town of Evergreen, Alabama, down on the farm that had been in our family for generations. There were no neighbors for miles away. What's this woman doing in our house? She worked in town. She cleaned houses for a living. She had gotten off from work from cleaning her last house. And as she came out of the grocery store, because she had stopped by to pick up some things, Two men grabbed her. One threw her in the back of the car. The other drove away. And they drove her six miles out of town to an old abandoned cemetery. There's no one nearby for miles. The nearest house is a mile and a half away, and it's our house. 
They took her out there. She had never been there. She didn't know where she was. All she knew was it was getting dark and these two men are threatening her. They had told her that they were going to take her out there and kill her. I mean, that's what they were going to do. They were going to kill her. They were going to bury her out in those woods and no one would ever find her. And it's true. No one ever would. Let me tell you, this place is a scary place, this cemetery. I mean, I grew up in that area and, and it is your... If you could imagine what a scary cemetery would look like, this one looked like it. Spanish moss just hanging down from the live oak trees. Uh, broken in graves. Tilting monuments. Uh, trees falling all over the place. Broom sage growing about, about waist high. It's just a scary place anytime. But can you imagine being taken there and your life being threatened? Now, I don't know how it happened. These men may have been drunk. I don't know. I was a third grader. But all I know is she was able to get away. And she didn't know where she was or where she needed to go. But all she knew was off in the distance, there is a light. And she thinks to herself, if I can escape these men and run toward that light, maybe I can find someone who will help me. Now, that light was the security light in our yard. We lived up on a high bluff. She saw that light. She ran toward the light. Now, this is a mile and a half away, through the woods, crossing a creek, over the fields. Everything she had to do to get there, it's going to take her hours to get there. So she goes and she runs. She has to cross a creek. That creek is about waist deep. It's cold. She has to wade across it, knowing those men are behind her. She has to crawl on her hands and knees across the field that had been harvested and was nothing but stubble through that field. But she had to crawl over it because if they saw her running across that field, they might shoot her. They may go and get her. She crawls across, and then she has to traverse through the woods where there are briars that will cut you like a razor blade. Finally, after hours of running and fear and being chased, she runs up to our driveway looks in the kitchen window and sees my mother putting green stamps in the green stamp book and she burst into the room. My mother was scared to death. We were scared to death. Now, one thing you may say, well, I, I bet you had to call the police. Now, I know this is going to be a shock, especially for some of you who are younger and who carry these things around. We lived so far out in the woods back in the early 60s that they didn't run phone lines that far out. They couldn't afford it. Now, we could afford the phone, but they wouldn't make any money by running the lines miles in the woods for this single solitary house out there. So we didn't even have a phone. So what do we do with this lady who's at our house? We can't call the police. There are people who are after her who want to kill her. What if they come to our house? What if they slaughter our family? What do we do? Well, I'm watching my dad. I'm watching to see what he does. And I follow him as he goes back to his bedroom. And I watch him as he reaches deep behind the clothes in the closet. And he grabs something that I knew was there, but he didn't know I knew was there. It was his old shotgun. He brought it out. It's an old Mossberg bolt action, 
12-gauge shotgun. I watched him as he loaded it with buckshot and proceeded it to walk down the hall. Now, I thought to myself, you know, this is serious stuff. Now, remember, I'm a third-grade boy. My, my mentor in life is Opie Taylor, okay? I'm thinking to myself, what would Opie do during a time like this? So I go to my room, and I reach under my bed, and I pull out my gun. And I think to myself, you know, I've got this gun now. I'm going to keep it with me. And if they overpower Daddy, I'll get them with this gun. Now, what you don't know about this gun was I had to go to the bathroom to load the gun because it was a water pistol. <laughs> put it in my pocket of my pajama. You know, you had the pockets right here. I put it, the barrel sticking out, and off we went. We went out to the carport. Daddy laid that shotgun between the seats of that Rambler station wagon that was our family car. On one side sat my sister in the back seat. I'm on the other side. This poor woman's in the middle of us. Mom and Daddy are in the front seat. Daddy said, we're not leaving anybody here. We don't know where these people are. They could come looking for her, and we're all going to Evergreen. And so we drove to town, to the police station, to drop her off. And I'll tell you, we got right to the city limits of Evergreen when she finally broke down and started crying. And she said, you don't know what you've done. You don't know that I would be dead right now. If I hadn't seen the light at that house, I'd be dead. Now, I want you to think about that for a second and realize and recognize what a mundane thing like a light would do when it comes to bringing hope to a person. And I want you to picture this for your church. Here you are, Mile Straight Baptist Church. I tell you, every time I come up here, I drive by on 27, and I see that beautiful sign that you got out on the highway that is welcoming and inviting, Mile Straight Baptist Church. Tells the time of the services. And then you just go just, uh, just a short distance, and you see these beautiful buildings and a, and a well-maintained and loved congregation that meets here. And I think to myself, every time I drive by, that church is a light for this community. Folks, we live in a world where there are people who are dying and going to hell every day. We live in a world where there are people without hope. Do you realize what a difference, what is preached here, what is taught here, what you say to our community as you go out from here, what hope you bring? You see, I think sometimes we as churches forget why we're here. I want us to go Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, and let's see what Jesus has to say and remind ourselves of why we're here to begin with. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had, look at that word, compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now when Jesus is going and teaching, we're told he does three things. He heals, he teaches, and he preaches, okay? He has an impact 
on the people everywhere he goes. And we're reminded why Jesus does this. In those words, when we're told that as he came across the hill and he looked out and there was a mass of people waiting to be healed, waiting to be taught, hearing every word that he had to say, he looked at those people and we're told he had compassion for those people. Now that word compassion, really, when we translate it from the Greek to the English, we, sometimes we lose sight of the true meaning of that word. We think to ourselves, well, that just means he, you know, he felt sorry for him, or, or he said, well, look at this crowd. No. You could just imagine. It's almost the same way that he responded when he looked at the tomb of Lazarus and we are told that he wept. He, emo he became emotionally uh, upset when he looked at the crowd. Now, why was he upset? Well, we're told here. He was upset because the, leader, the spiritual leadership of Israel had neglected the teachings to these people. They weren't ready for the Messiah. They had no hope. They were, they were just ignorant of anything when it came to the coming of the Messiah and the hope that the Messiah would bring, which, by the way, is Jesus, okay? So they were not prepared, and he looked, and he saw in them a hopelessness, a despair, a, 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 uh, an abuse that had happened by the religious leaders who were more interested in their money rather than their souls, and it made him upset. Made him, made him just sick to his stomach. Literally, it made him sick to his stomach at what had happened to them. You see, folks, let me tell you something. We live in a lost